I am Citizen 44. Everything is changing, changing so fast. About the only thing that stays the same is that nothing seems to last. Sometimes I feel like a snake. It's tired of his skin Then I realize I've closed my eyes I haven't let the changes in And there's work to do Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 101. My guest today on the show is Michael Brosowski. Michael Brosowski is the CEO and founder of Blue Dragon Children's Foundation located in Hanoi. Blue Dragon helps children and families in crisis get out of sticky situations. It was really an honor to talk to Michael about the incredible work that his organization is doing. There's so much challenge involved with poverty and wanting a better life. And because of that, people are preyed upon, sex trafficking and all kinds of scams that promise a better life for people who are struggling and get caught in this trap. I think Michael said he has rescued over 1,100 people since the inception of Blue Dragon. It was really nice to talk to him and be inspired. It's the big birthday month still. It's November, and I turned 60 on the 19th, which still does not compute to me. I don't get the whole 60 number. My daughter turned 21 on the 7th, and her mother turned 61 on the 11th, 11-11, which is supposed to be a significant number for me based on my ex-girlfriend and her girlfriend doing some kind of numerological chart about a year ago, which makes sense that 11-11 is significant, like the 44, the 33. You know, I have some kind of a thing going with these symbols. I'm back in the office. I guess it's been four months that I've been in my room for the most part. But uh, it's really great to get out and do my thing. November 30th, which is in a couple days from now, is my mother's two-year anniversary of her passing. So there'll be a little bit of my mom on this show to commemorate all the time she spent doing the show with me, which was amazing. It was so special to have my mother as part of the Citizen 44 podcast. And as you noticed on the last show, number 100, my daughter was on, my father was on. I don't know if you can hear this in my nasal cavity, but I still got this thing going on, man. Here's Michael. Good morning, Michael. Hey, Matt. Good morning to you, too. 
thanks so much for being on the C44 podcast. I really appreciate it. I know you're a super busy guy, especially right now, maybe more than ever with COVID here in Vietnam and all the things associated with this pandemic here and the incredible work that Blue Dragon is doing. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I'd spent some time looking at Life is a Long Story, your blog which has some really beautiful stories of how Blue Dragon has gone in and changed some lives beyond description for children and families who've really struggled, not only during the pandemic and what kind of catastrophes that has created for young people and their families, but just in general, the problems of the world, especially in this area of the world where people are more vulnerable, less educated, and looking for an out, looking for the quick fix to something that there is no quick fix for. And you guys are Johnny on the spot and really made a difference in a lot of lives. Now that lockdown is over, what is going on for you and your organization and what has the pandemic created as far as even more difficulties for you guys? Yeah, well, well you know, I, I could talk about how we're working towards systemic change. We're working with the governments uh, of different provinces around Vietnam and, and sometimes with the central government on policy reform and so on. But actually, the thing that's really interesting about Blue Dragon is that we did start with those individual people. So when you're reading on, on my blog life is a long story. Yeah, there's there's stories of this one boy and this one girl or this one family. That was how Blue Dragon started, right? I was just living here in Vietnam. I didn't come to Vietnam to set up Blue Dragon. I I came actually thinking I was going to have an easy life. I was wrong, you know, and and I just met someone on the street, you know, a a shoeshine boy or or a woman selling fruit and, and just got talking and got to know them and thought, hang on, I could actually help with this problem that they're having. You know, they need to go to a doctor or they they, uh, they just need some food. And so you see that still reflected in what we do now, even though we're doing that bigger picture work. It actually begins with that kid on the street or, or with that woman who calls for help from slavery. And I think that's what I really love about Blue Dragon, that, that even though we've grown, you know, we've been going for Uh, I mean, I've been in Vietnam for nearly 20 years now, so we've been going most of that time. But we've never given up on on that individual child or that that individual family. We don't say, look, you know, we're too big to help you, which doesn't mean we can always help everyone, by the way, but we try. And in fact, this pandemic has kind of been a test of that. You know, I sometimes describe it as like a grenade being thrown into an already volatile situation. We're used to dealing in crisis. That's what Blue Dragon does. We meet young people who are in crisis situations. They're homeless. They're trapped in a brothel. They've been sold into a a forced marriage. And our job is to get them out of that crisis and then help them on their path to recovery. And then you throw a global pandemic on top of that. So, for example, here in Hanoi, where I'm based, we've seen hundreds of homeless people during this pandemic. Sometimes workers from up in the mountains who just couldn't get home or families who suddenly couldn't pay the rent anymore. And some of these are people who we wouldn't normally help, especially, you know, adults, workers from up in the villages. Blue Dragon doesn't really work with homeless adults. But during this pandemic, well, someone's got to work with them. Someone's got to help. And we've been able to. 
a lot of people maybe couldn't get out onto the streets delivering food, but we could. So we expanded the scope. And now, we're, you know, you and I are talking now at a time when those lockdown restrictions are lifting and hopefully COVID is easing off in Hanoi and other parts of Vietnam. So now we're, we're kind of pulling back on, on that. So, you know, we flow with the tide. When we're needed somewhere, if there really is no one else to help, then we'll help. And COVID has been one of those situations. So, yeah, it keeps us on our toes, Mark. Yeah, I'm sure you were definitely battle-tested and unexpected, especially here, because I came last January, and that's when the pandemic struck. And, you know, it was a mild response that was needed at the time because it was a different strain, and it was not as infectious, and it wasn't too bad. Yeah. So we went between 8 and 12 months pretty carefree. The entire country was pretty open, and it was no problem. But this last wave, of course, was something completely different and I think caught this country off guard as well. And as happy as they were that they were able to navigate the first round of it pretty effortlessly, clearly the government was not prepared for what was coming. And to this day, I think they're very lucky that the numbers have reduced, the illnesses have reduced nationally. I tell people the difference between Vietnam, let's say, and the States is huge in the sense that, you know, you don't have a lot of anti-vaxxers here. People cooperate here. Yeah. It's a different mentality, a different type of society where everybody's together. It's part of the reason I'm here. Maybe part of the reason you even came here is that whole family concept, the community concept of all is one. And I appreciate that. And I was neutral as far as the vaccine. I'd get it if I had to. If I didn't have to, I'm a pretty young guy, very healthy. I wasn't really concerned about it. But uh, I got my vaccine more because everybody was doing it and I, I wanted to be part of that. And uh, I also want to protect other people as much as I want to protect myself, of course, uh, because I, I wanted it to be a selfless act, not a selfish act. And, you know, if this happened in America, people would be killing each other on the streets. I mean, I cannot imagine the chaos that would ensue from such a stringent lockdown. I don't think they could do it. I mean, it's kind of like you could not have a motorbike culture in America because the streets would be littered with dead people. Yeah. Again, another reason I'm here, it's a a totally different mentality. We are coming out of it now. The lockdown restrictions have been reduced, but there's going to be long-term financial ramifications for this. Families that are going to struggle, these little mom-and-pop stores that still cannot open and do business What has been your experience in the fallout and what's going to be a continuous fallout for who knows how long to come, actually? Yeah. So, in fact, we're finding our way through this. You know, there's no playbook. We just don't know right now. What we have seen so far is, uh, you know, as, as you're describing, it's the poorest people who have lost the most. It's the grab motorbike drivers. It's the little shopkeepers. It's the women who who sell fruit on the street or, or collect scrap. Or, you know, it's it's the ethnic minority workers who our cities rely on to build our houses and to clean our streets. And they're the people who, when the lockdowns came and these restrictions started, lost all possibility of income, struggled and are still struggling to, to access the government um, support because they're not registered to be here and may have no kind of identification papers, and of course have no savings. 
And so these last few months for them have been so terrible. And, and at this point, with cities opening up, you know, some people were thinking, well, these people would be really happy when the cities open up again. You know, they can get back to work, start earning money. Actually, what do they want to do? They want to get out of Dodge. They want to head back to their families and to their countryside. And I don't blame them at all. What I worry about is that there is going to be a long period of adjustment. As you say, things still actually aren't fully opened up, not by a long shot. And it's all those workers who are out of jobs. So we're trying to be creative. You know, for, for as long as we need to, we can give handouts. You know, we can do that. Blue Dragon called for donations. People here in Vietnam and around the world were just incredibly generous and have donated money. Some people here in Vietnam donated food or, or other supplies that we could directly give out. So that's all good. But of course, giving people handouts isn't the way of the future, is it? The challenge is how do we get people back to work? And what work will there be? You know, typically in Vietnam and in other countries like this, some sectors like hospitality have been really good ones for disadvantaged people to get into. There are always jobs in restaurants or hotels and, you know, there's always tourism. Well, now all of a sudden, for the short term, those jobs are gone. And when things start to return, we're going to see a huge glut of underemployment because there are now so many people in that sector who don't have a job, people with experience and skills. It's going to be very, very hard for new people to break into that industry. So what jobs do they need? What training do they need? How can we help them find their way back? And whatever we do, by the way, it's not a quick fix. It's not going to be like in a few weeks' time, someone can access a new job and start earning money. We need to be making plans over months and maybe even over a year or two. So it's all new territory. And that's exciting. It's a challenge. It creates new possibility. And it's also hardship. It also means people losing some of their dignity in just being able to work and earn their own money or care for their own family. In the first week of Hanoi opening up, Blue Dragon responded to two attempted suicides of people who were in very difficult situations. There's a lot of hardship and there will continue to be despite things opening up. Well, my understanding too is these people have gone back to their hometowns and there's a bit of a trust issue between these people also in the government that they don't believe that they will be able to come back to work and the workforce has been reduced almost to nothing here. So there is an alignment issue problem that as the restrictions even loosen up more and major manufacturing companies start opening up, there are some people that will not return to work and they're going to stay in their hometowns and work in the rice fields or help their families in whatever industry that they have going on just to make their meager income. Yeah. There's a communication problem. There's all kinds of related issues. And they're not even talking about tourism and hospitality opening up till June of 2022. So yeah, there's going to be a disparity for a long time. And I can't even imagine how you can fill in that gap in any way possible. Yeah. Well, you know, in the long term, things will balance out. In five years' time, I hope. I mean, maybe in five years' time, I'll be eating my words, Mark. Let's see. But Vietnam has a way of balancing things out for that long term. But you're absolutely right that in the coming weeks, months, and possibly years, there is that issue of, well, I guess the companies would call it a labor supply, right? And that's one reason that Vietnam is very resilient, by the way. When people lose their jobs, normally 
they can still head home to the countryside, back to the village, and farm rice. You don't need a lot of money to live back there. So that's why, especially during last year's lockdowns, even though shops were closed, businesses were shut, we weren't seeing lots and lots of homeless people all of a sudden. There was an increase, but it wasn't like this year. This year, you know, the lockdown happened overnight, certainly in Hanoi. We went to bed on Friday night and on Saturday morning woke up to learn the news that we were already in lockdown. So people didn't have an opportunity to get out of the city and and get back to their home. If they can, they can go back and live with the extended family. And because of that, right now, people will be back there, those who've now been able to get home. And yeah, as you say, they will be saying, why take the risk of returning to the city? There could be another lockdown, just spent three months there without really enough to eat, barely getting by, relying on charity. I'm going to wait until this is all over. So for companies, that's going to be hard. But if I know anything about Vietnam, it's that the authorities will be looking for a way to fix this. It'll be devastating for the country if industry really does close down and uh, companies move out of Vietnam. I hope that that scenario doesn't play out. The country has come so far in developing and adding jobs and industry and so on. I guess that's the greatest fear of all of us during this for the long term, that Vietnam's development will slow down or even go backwards. You know, recently there was that statistic that um, Vietnam's GDP has shrunk by a little bit over 6%. You know, if that continues to play out, that's a real blow for a country that has tried so hard to develop. Yeah, on... uh... I don't know if my last show or the show before I had John Sabot on. He's from Canada. He's a local blogger. And uh, he was talking about the fact that it's really critical that some of these wealthy nations need to get Vietnam these vaccines because it's in their economic best interest. They want those cheap tennis shoes and T-shirts. It is to their advantage to invest in Vietnam. Yep. When I came in January of 2020, Ho Chi Minh City was the fastest growing economy in the world. It's one of the reasons I came here and not Thailand, for instance, because you can do anything here. There's no employment restrictions. There's no restrictions on anything. There's even, I think, a total misunderstanding of what type of a government this is. People are still living in the 1940s and 50s when they think about the type of government that is here, when in fact, I feel completely free. I mean, just don't do anything overly stupid in public. And you can do literally anything you want here. There's incredible opportunity in Vietnam for you to be a creative entrepreneur. If you can think of something, you can execute it. Yeah. Again, I've only been here since January of 2020. I've experienced quite a bit. It's the sweetest society I've ever been in. And they are resilient. And the fact that they even allow me here after the history between our two countries and are so forgiving. You ask people here, how are you today? And they say, I'm great every day. And I said, yeah, well, you're not great every minute of every day. And they said, no, that's true, but I'm great every day. And I can't go home and hear that from anybody Yeah. at any time that I'm great every day. So that mentality alone is a savior. It doesn't put food on the table. But when there is very little, if nothing, there's that spark inside of these people that has allowed them to get through a lot of suffering. There's been so much war here, so much pain, so much suffering, and they're still the happiest people I've ever met in my life. Yeah, you're you're right that the world looks at Vietnam through the wrong lenses, Um, you know, People around the world who haven't been here, who haven't, who haven't spent time here, see Vietnam as a war. 
Now, yes, war played a major role in this country in shaping what the country is today. But, you know, the last war really finished in 79, and that wasn't even a war, that was a battle. You know, most people have been born since then. And while the war does play a very important role, you know, in this country's history and, and identity, there's so much more to the country than that. And it's that nuance that's needed when looking at Vietnam. It is overwhelmingly an optimistic country where people work hard. My goodness, they work hard and are ambitious. It's what brought me to Vietnam as well. Now, by the way, those same qualities are risk factors too. And that's where Blue Dragon's work kind of gets very interesting. People here want opportunity. They want to develop. They don't want to sit where they are and say, now nah, I'm fine. I've got enough or what's the use in trying? You don't hear that from people. And because of that, actually puts people in some vulnerable situations. We've dealt a lot over the years with human trafficking. And again, some people think that that's kidnapping, it's abduction. Uh, it actually doesn't work quite like that here in Vietnam. The typical scenario is that the trafficker sets up what looks like a really legitimate job or training opportunity. And they target people who are in desperate situations, who are very poor. We've come across cases where the traffickers targeted a mother whose child was in the cancer hospital, or they target people up in the ethnic minority communities, just don't have access to good jobs and training, but might need some money or be living in real hardship. And they offer them, come with me, I've got a company that needs employees, or Come with me and I'll introduce you to my friend who owns a restaurant. And they paint this picture of if you go to Hanoi, you go to China, the roads are paved with gold. Everyone's rich. Come with me and you'll have a part of this. And then they get them across the border and just sell them into slavery. But it's that desire for something better that on one hand is the driver of this country. That's what makes it so exciting to be here and has driven this incredible development. But for some people, it puts them in risk. And that's where Blue Dragon is working, sort of in that grey area between the exciting dynamic development and the terrible risk that people face. Again, there's no quick solution to that, no quick fix. It's something to work on over the long term. But we can improve it. We absolutely can do things that will keep people safe. And we're learning and, and trying to roll those things out across the country to, to put protections in so that those people who want to improve, who are desperate for a job or in some hardship, that they don't have to take that risk. Actually, that's the way we're going to end human trafficking in Vietnam, by helping people find safe options or to simply be safe at home. It's a long road and it's worth it because, you know, when you think about that, the people who get trafficked are those who just want to improve their lives, who are looking for something better. It makes trafficking more of a crime when you think of it that way. Well, the story of Cao and Nam is even more heartbreaking because we're not talking about somebody who is trying to get ahead or just sustain themselves. You're talking about someone falling in love and someone taking advantage of the heart. It's such a horrible story. Yeah. And that's pure innocence. After reading it, I even thought about Nam and how he had considered what had happened after he'd done it. And I'm wondering now if just throwing people in prison is the right thing to do. Like, Nam could be someone you could convert. He was on the verge of having a conscience about the money he was making at the risk of selling this young woman who was literally in love with him into slavery. What a perfect person that you could bring to your side and train and help 
convert people to conscious people who are doing work to combat this because it's hard from the inside as you are working, but to have these people who have experience, you know, the same thing with poaching where they convert poachers into policemen. It seems that maybe instead of punishing these people who might have gone into the business because of their own shortcomings, I mean, why did they end up in this business? What is the core problem? Why is it even occurring? What do these people need that they're so desperate that they're willing to put other people's lives in jeopardy? Typically, humanity does not get to the core problems. You know, prevention is the cure, which is what you're doing in many ways. But how do you convince people that are in the business that the money is secondarily important to the health of their heart and their conscience. Yep. What is it that Blue Dragon can do to help even educate those that are in the business versus those that are subject to being caught in the business? Mark, I love your thinking. Now, not everyone would think of it that way, but what you have raised is part of Vietnam's solution to human trafficking. So, of course... Most people know about human trafficking and are sympathetic with the victims. Not a whole lot is actually known about, well, who are the traffickers? What got them into this? We've recently been doing a bit of in-house study on this because, you know, we've rescued, it's coming up to 1,100 people from trafficking and from all sorts, kids who were in sweatshops, women who were trafficked into brothels and so on. Along the way, we've been in a lot of court cases. We have our own lawyers on staff. We've got these incredible Vietnamese lawyers who have been with us for like 15 years, you know, from the start. And after we've rescued someone, we go to court and represent them once their trafficker has been caught and is being prosecuted. So we kind of actually have a lot of data, a lot of information about the traffickers so we've put all of that together and we've also looked at the information we could find elsewhere, information from the government's own database, which they publish online. We've put it all together and basically, in short, the people who traffic others are actually very similar to their victims. They're very often ethnic minority people. Now, not always, and there are always exceptions, okay? But typically, the trafficker is an ethnic minority person, as is the victim. The trafficker comes from a very poor background, as is the victim. The trafficker has almost certainly not finished grade 12, possibly hasn't finished grade 9, and sometimes, quite a significant number of times, is illiterate. You know, once somebody has trafficked another, from our point of view, then there's not much we can do. It is a police matter. If they've been trafficking, they're probably going to end up in prison. But it does give us this glimmer of hope that we can get to people before they become traffickers and possibly by using very similar approaches to the way we try to stop people from getting trafficked by keeping them in school, by helping them find jobs, by helping families to develop their own income. You know, the same things that will stop a person from becoming a victim of trafficking would appear to be helpful in stopping somebody from becoming a trafficker. Now, what a fascinating opportunity. And we are experimenting with this. You see, the difficulty is, if you said to me, well, can you prove that you stopped someone from becoming a trafficker? Well, it's very hard to actually prove that we stopped something that might have happened in the future. But we can try and we can experiment. You know, we have lawyers and they represent women in court, boys and men as well. Normally, those court cases will take place in the capital city of the province 
where the crime occurred. So we've developed this step where we work with the government to hold a circuit court. So instead of the court taking place in the capital city, we take it out to the district. And when that happens, it gives the local police and the local government officials some insight into this process, because otherwise they would only read about it in a report. They actually get to take part in it. But it also gives the local people an opportunity to come and witness. You know, some of these circuit courts have been held literally in a tent because there wasn't a building or it's in like the only building in town that can be used for that. And it flows into a big courtyard and people just come to listen and see what's going on. We protect the privacy of the victim, by the way. The victim of trafficking doesn't have to be in court. We can represent them and they don't have to be there if they don't want to be. Their identity is protected. But you've got the whole community coming and listening. And in that crowd, you have people who might one day have the opportunity to traffic. We want them to see, if you traffic, you go to prison. There are consequences for this. You know, in, in that case that you're talking about with Cow and Nam, the ringleader, Nam's gang leader, he's in prison for life. So part of ending trafficking is showing potential traffickers the consequences and at the same time giving them alternatives. It's not enough just to say, don't do it or you'll get in trouble. If someone's hungry, it's the same with trying to prevent, you know, saying to a woman or to a girl, you shouldn't take a risk. You shouldn't travel away from home because it's dangerous. Well, that person is thinking, yes, yeah, staying at home is dangerous. I don't have any food. I have nothing here. So you've got to reduce the risk. You can't just tell people, don't do it. There's no silver bullet. There's no one thing. If you do this, everyone's aware of trafficking. Everyone. It still happens because people are hungry. That's the answer. You just said it. If everybody just had enough to eat as just a base minimum, a lot of the world's problems would go away. It's an embarrassment to be a human knowing that there is so much and people have nothing. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's embarrassing to me as a human being knowing how much that some have and others have nothing. Yep. And it's not even intelligent because people would be so much more productive. People could make a lot more money if they just distributed the wealth. It's kind of nuts. And frankly, we don't deserve to be here. And I think that's why our time is running out because we're just selfish pieces of shit. And it's just not fair to people who are put in subjugation, who are put at risk absolutely unnecessarily. There's no excuse for it at all. None. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Well, look, I, I'm not going to use those words on my blog, but it's also hard to argue. And just like you said earlier on, why isn't the world shipping vaccines to Vietnam and to other countries in this region? It would be in their own self-interest. Now, there are some, by the way, and you can get on uh, social media and see this government has donated this many vaccines. Show us how to make it ourselves. Stop controlling this for profit. But somehow the profit motive rules and that's hurting the people who are actually trying to make money. It's, it's just crazy. They're harming themselves by not helping. I totally agree. It's a ship of fools, man. It has been for thousands of years, maybe since the beginning of the agricultural revolution when we thought we were going to become entrepreneurs and make money and we made ourselves slaves. 
really, we were stupid. We're not critical thinkers and we're not preventative. We don't prevent things from happening through even having hindsight. We're just not very smart. As educated as we think we are, we're just dumb as a box of rocks, which is sad because these people looking for more, even here, that think the grass is greener in America, that think that there's more, what they have, that foundational, fundamental family relationship where enough is enough, is enough. I mean, when we were hunters and gatherers, it was enough. And yeah, you had to run away from elephants and tigers, and that was the biggest danger. But we've become a little spoiled, and we've become a little too ambitious in thinking that having what is basic is not enough. And at some point, the way things are going with climate change and all these other extreme changes that are happening in our environment and in our lives, we're going to end up back there anyway, if we survive at all. And we're just spending a lot of wasted time learning a lesson that Tolstoy and Huxley and everybody else has been telling for hundreds of years. And it's sad to watch because I don't like to should people, but you shouldn't have to be in the position that you're in because of selfishness, because of a lack of willingness to just have mutual appreciation and support at a very low level. We're not talking about making people wealthy. We're just talking about getting them fundamental basic needs so they can be happy. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we do, for example, that initially I struggled a little bit with is helping families, especially up in the mountains, but not only. Uh, I mean, even in, in Hui, where there was a huge typhoon in 2020, you know, families lost everything. And part of our response there, as it is up in the more mountainous regions, is helping people with livestock, for example, chickens or cows or pigs. And initially I felt a little bit uncomfortable with that because I, I was asking myself, you know, no one gets rich from having a cow or from having 50 chickens. You know, you can get by, you can, you can look after yourself. Are we in danger there of putting limits on people? Shouldn't we be helping them to get further training and get a job in the hotel industry or something? And then what I've realized over time is actually no, there are people who want to travel abroad and work in a five-star hotel. And there are people who want to stay at home and raise chickens. And that's okay, as long as it's their choice. As long as no one is making them choose that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with staying home and raising chickens. You know, here in Hanoi, one issue is in the middle of the Red River, there's a community of people who live on an island. And we foreigners call it Banana Island, but it's just, you know, the island in the middle of the river. And over time, every few years, there's a project to help those people get off the island. And the project always fails. You know, these people live in really hard conditions. They live on floating boats or sort of on shacks. They're not meant to live there. You know, no one has permission to live there. No one owns that land. And, and so someone comes along every few years saying, well, we should get them off the island. Projects always fail because those people love to live on that island. They don't have landlords. They grow their own food. They're a community. I mean, it's not perfect, not by a long shot, but those people who are there largely want to be there. If anyone doesn't want to be there, by the way, there's plenty of help to get off the island. Blue Dragon will help a family to get off the island. There are other organizations as well that will, but if that's what they want, then how do we help them in that situation to be safe for their children to have healthy food and you know, not to be washing in that awful water? But instead of taking them out of that situation and saying, you should aspire to more, actually, they're really happy. How do we just help them with their needs? But 
humans tend to think more, well, no, you couldn't possibly want to live in that tin shack. You know, you must want to live in a brick house and be paying off a mortgage. In reality, we're a lot more complicated than that. And I think, again, it comes down to making sure people have the choice. If you want to raise cows and chickens, how can we help you to do that? Let's not assume that everybody wants to go to the city and wants a great job. Now, the problem is, and again, this is where human trafficking happens, when, for example, and I can tell you the story of one family in Hazang province where they were happily growing their corn and, and they had a, had a cow, and then one of the children got sick. And the only way mum could pay for the hospital was to sell the cow. And then once she had sold the cow, they were really hard up. So, you know, you've got to support people to do what they want and also make sure there's some kind of safety net. And if we have that, then people can lead lives that are good for them and are good for the earth. And that's the balance we should be striving for, right? Not trying to get everyone into a mansion and traveling the world. We just need to support people however they need support. If you allow people to use their instincts and raise their families how they see fit, you're going to have a lot of happy people. You're not going to have a lot of dissension. Violence will be eliminated. One thing about this culture is you do not, during normal times, see homeless people. Yeah, it's about finding the gaps, right, and filling the gaps. So in normal times, non-pandemic times, where you do see homeless people, I mean, Blue Dragon works especially with children, they're kids who've come in from the countryside and come in for work thinking, I'm going to support my family and find out, oh, you know, actually I can't. And then they don't have any money and, and then they're sleeping rough. And they simply need someone to find them who's going to help them to get back to their family. It's almost as simple as that. Or it's kids who've come running away because of abuse at home or some serious problem at home. And they're going to need a lot more help. But it's not like some cities in the US where homelessness is really obvious and, and on a large, large scale. Here it's more about the gaps and, you know, something hasn't worked for that child. Now they're homeless. Okay, so how do we help that child rather than a huge problem of dealing with tens of thousands of people out on the streets? Because of that community approach that Vietnam takes, which protects people. And it's not perfect, that's for sure. You know, it, it can improve. But what I do love about Vietnam is that it's always looking for ways to improve. Nothing here is perfect. It's not an ideal paradise, but things are getting better all the time, except during COVID. I think we can agree. Yeah. Let's talk about your coming to Vietnam. What year did you come? I first came here on a holiday right at the end of 1998. So Vietnam was certainly developing at that time, but nowhere near to the level that it is now. You know, the roads were... Not as good as they are now, and, and believe it or not, you know, all across the Mekong Delta, all of those bridges were not there. All of the crossing was by ferry. And you did have a lot of people begging at that time. Uh, you'd see a lot of people with disabilities out on the streets, pulling themselves around on a cart, for example, begging for money or selling lottery tickets. So it was a lot more of a difficult time for Vietnam. But then I moved here a few years after that. I moved here in 2002 and have been here since then. Why did you end up coming to stay? Well, I was a high school teacher in Australia, and a lot of my students were Vietnamese. That was why I first came on holiday. I was curious about the country, and I absolutely fell in love with the place. It was that dynamism that we've been talking about, that growth, that hunger for development. And I'll tell you the story. I call it my mountain bottom story. It wasn't the mountaintop story. This was the mountain bottom story. I was on one of those Sing Cafe tours where, you know, they put... 50 people on a bus 
and you go around for four or five days around the Mekong Delta. And we're on, I think it was the final day of our tour. We were in Chowdok. We'd spent the night in Chowdok, which is a town right on the Cambodian border in Anyang province. And in the morning, we had breakfast and then traveled out to Nui Sam Mountain, which is this huge hill that shoots up out of nowhere. It's all the flat rice fields. There's this mountain. And when the bus got out there, I was actually really sick. I think I'd had some food poisoning that, that morning and I'd, I'd thrown up and I was feeling really crook. So the whole bus group was walking up this mountain. There's no way I'm going to walk up this hill, you know, I'm just going to sit here. And I found a spot under a big tree and I just sat there. Now, opposite me were these tin huts with dirt floors. And from that, there were people selling candy and Coca-Cola and so on to the tourists. And these were poor, poor people. You know, you could just see their kids were running around wearing nothing but a pair of shorts, no shoes, you know, just the absolute picture of poverty that you would have in your mind. And I was sitting there on that bench. And of course, people took that opportunity just to walk over and start trying to communicate with me, as people do here in Vietnam. You know, people are curious and not so inhibited as we are in the West. And some kids, of course, came up. And I just kind of thought, well, they're probably going to ask me for some money because, you know, they're really poor. And they didn't. They brought with them their textbooks from school. And the textbooks, by the way, were so bad. I didn't even know that they were English study textbooks. It took me time to work out what the books were even about. And they were torn and tattered. And they were just dreadful school books. It turned out that those kids had an English exam at their school that afternoon. And they just wanted me to help them prepare for their exam. And it blew my mind. I mean, as a school teacher, when kids come up to you on the street saying, would you help me to study? That doesn't happen in Australia. So there I was. And the mothers of these kids were watching. You know, they were looking after their kids. And they saw that I was helping. So they started bringing me candy and, and Coke and things. And they absolutely refused to take money for it because they were just so appreciative. You know, all of these tourists come every day, probably thousands of people walk up the hill, get their photos, walk back down, get on the bus. And here was someone who was just sitting there. And by the way, not because I was a good-hearted soul, it was just that I was sick. And they appreciated that so much. Now, I'm still in contact with those families, by the way. You know, those kids have grown up now and have kids of their own, and, and I'm still in touch with some of them. When the tour group came down the hill, I got back on the bus and I cried because I had never had such a positive, affirming experience in my life that people wanted education and I could do something that made such a difference to a community. And I couldn't believe that I was getting on the bus and leaving. I, you know, I was in flow while I was there. I, I don't know how long I was doing that. It might have been half an hour. It might have been two hours. I have no recollection. All I know is that I was helping someone and it meant something to them. I got back on the bus because I had no idea where we were. And I was afraid that I'd be stuck there forever. But once I got back to Ho Chi Minh City, I investigated where were we? Where did that happen? And the next day I actually went back. And again, the community couldn't believe that someone came back. So that's why I moved to Vietnam, basically, in a nutshell. It was that experience, my first time in Vietnam, and being able to see I could actually make a difference to somebody here. I could do something that mattered. And we're all on a search for meaning problems of how we've trashed our world is because we, we look for meaning in all the wrong places. I don't think anyone wants to trash the world, but we all think we need a bigger house, we need more clothes, we need that next iPhone. 
And in doing all of that, we're destroying ourselves. But we don't want to destroy ourselves. We're just looking for happiness. We're looking for connection. We're looking in the wrong places. And I just got really lucky one day and found that connection. But even still, when I moved back to Vietnam three years later, I didn't come here thinking, I'm going to do that. I'm going to help poor kids to learn. I still came thinking I'm going to have an easy life. I'm going to teach a bit of English in a language school and spend my weekend on the beach. That was what I thought I was going to do. Blue Dragon started six months after I got here, where I was just in that situation of meeting kids and again, like finding people want to learn English. They want to develop. I can help with that. And then when I got to know them, I could see actually they need a lot more than English lessons. They need a home. They need to go back to school. They need a job. And Blue Dragon grew out of that. But really it just started with that I can help. And why wouldn't I help if I could? Simple humanity. It's a very beautiful story. It's selfless. And it's selfish at the same time because I know you get incredible satisfaction. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the ultimate dopamine hit. To change the life of an individual is so gratifying. And the children here are so sweet. I mean, I just love walking down the street. I high-five every child I see. And uh, they're so warm and appreciative and curious and unafraid, honestly. Uh, uh, fear is not something here. People are very generous. I must say sin chow 150 times a day because... If you're willing to make eye contact with me, I'm going to let you know who I am. And you can be a brightly colored bird here from another place and have a really good time, as you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, I really appreciate that you've taken this path and that you are doing, you're doing the real work. I agree with what you said there, that this is not totally selfless. I could also be doing other things and having an easier life, that's for sure. But absolutely... I love what I do and I feel so lucky, so lucky that I found something that I believe in that is meaningful. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. But having said that, that doesn't mean everyone should do this. That doesn't mean this is the ultimate for everyone. Maybe it's running a podcast that actually brings you that meaning. There are lots of things and lots of ways to contribute to our world that don't mean packing your bag and going to Vietnam and starting a charity to rescue people. So I don't want to give that impression. But for each one of us, it's about finding what is our thing that we can do. And, you know, maybe someone's listening to this, Mark, and they're a banker and they're thinking, well, I don't contribute to the world. But you can, as a banker, you can contribute. Find the way in what you're doing. So I was an English teacher and that was my way in to helping people. If you're a doctor, a journalist, whatever you do, a cleaner, an accountant, there's a way you can help. And I always say to people, start where you are. Don't pack your bag and move to another country. I could have done something like this in Australia or, or in any other country. It was only by chance that I was in Vietnam, you know, when I met these street kids in Hanoi and, and said, okay, well, I'll, I'll help. Start where you are is what I would say. How can people help you out? Where can they go to help support you and get involved and uh, be part of this movement of getting children the help they need? Head over to the website, bluedragon.org. And of course, we're on all the social media. So find us on there and follow the stories. See what connects with you. And, you know, some people love Blue Dragon and sign up and donate some money every month or their school raises funds for us. However you want to connect with us, there are lots of different ways. 
But what I would say also is if Blue Dragon isn't your thing, find what is. Of course, Blue Dragon's the best charity in the world. But if it's not the best one for you, find the thing that connects with you. What I say to everyone is do your part. If everyone did a little bit, our world would just be so much more amazing than it is. It doesn't mean everyone's got to quit their job and start an NGO. Everyone just has to do their little bit where they are. It goes back to when I I volunteered at a middle school in Ashland, Oregon for four years. And I think the fundamental thing that we're missing, that little piece is teaching people how to be in service. We don't do that. Mm. From the very beginning, we need to show that if we serve each other, we would never let each other fall through the cracks. It's kind of like creating family. And it's not part of the curriculum. It's not part of infusing in education that you serve your brothers and sisters And if we did that, when you create family like that, it's very unlikely that you would allow something terrible to happen to them or even perpetrate something negative on them. I think it's critical until we start making that part of a fundamental education that we serve each other, we're going to continue to hurt each other. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's the right way of looking at it. And there are different ways, by the way, to volunteer. You know, one is to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this place for one hour a week and help with this thing. And that can be very valuable. There's also, I'm going to cook a meal and I'm just going to leave it on the doorstep of that elderly man across the street whose wife passed away. I'm going to ring my auntie every week and just check in and see how she's going now that she lives alone. I'm going to pick up the trash when I see it on my way to work. You know, incorporating it into your everyday is as important as those standalone things of, I'm going to go and do this for a week on a volunteering mission or or something. Incorporating it as part of your life, your mentality, the way you look at the world. And sometimes, you know, making our world a better place is also about what you don't do, you know. So I'm not going to get my clothes shipped to me every week because, you know, I know that that involves all this packaging and so on that's creating pollution. Or I'm not going to go on a holiday overseas next year because I know that that's causing harm to our planet. So sometimes making the choices to not do something is actually harder than the choice to do something. But it's also important that we make those good decisions. Well, you're talking about critical thinking and it's not widespread. We have been subscribing to other people's stories and creating competition of being right instead of just doing the right thing. Everything is about the decisions we make. And just making a little shift in priorities and having some different values can change everything for us in a minute, literally in a minute. We could change it as quickly as we want to. It's up to us entirely. Yeah, it's about how we see the world and then decide to interact with it. You know, there's a particular book that I've read that I would recommend to anyone, The Art of Possibility. It's not a new book. It's quite an old one, actually, that just talks about the way you see the world and and how it's completely constructed. You can completely change the way you see the world. Completely. You know, the way we see the world is a construct. And we're always guessing at each other. We're always assuming things about each other. We're, We're always taking things the wrong way. We don't have to. When we address our mindset and realize, actually, there's good in people, and there is certainly bad in people and bad in our world, but there's also good in people and We can also allow people to be wrong. We don't have to judge as much as we do. To me, these are all important as part of that conversation. Blue Dragon is trying to help kids, but it's more than helping the individuals. We absolutely do that, and and that's critical. You know, we're changing lives. But we also want to change the way people think about those kids. We want to change the way those kids think about themselves. 
the negative stories that they've been brought up with about who they are and what sort of people they are. But we all need to do that. We all need to rethink ourselves, that critical thinking that you're talking about, Mark. And again, that contributes to a much better world where we can actually live in community with each other as we should. We're social animals. We're communal animals. Our individualistic behavior really hurts ourselves as well as each other. Michael, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you and hear the incredible work that you're doing here in Vietnam. And I I just want to say personally that I really appreciate the quest that you're on and all the support that you're giving those who desperately need it. Good on you, Mark. Thanks. Real pleasure to chat with you. Just look around you, there are sisters and brothers dying. Just look around you, there are hungry children crying. Just look around you, they will buy your silence. Just look around you at the subtle shades of violence. Just look around you. Hey, Mom. What's happening? Not much. Just making chicken soup. Maybe make Daddy feel better. What's the matter with Dad? You know, his lungs have been bothering him. I didn't know that was happening recently. Oh, yeah. And then they added a lot more meds yesterday. So I had this chicken for a couple of days, and I said, I'm going to go play cards today. So then he came back, and I thought, geez, I have plenty of time. So, like, what do you do with the chicken? What to do, what to do? So, I thought, well, if he's not feeling up to par, chicken soup is always good. Jewish medicine, right? Jewish penicillin. Right. Well, it's not helping my shoulder. What's the matter with your shoulder? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? It hurts. Okay. And then it goes down and I get electric shots in it. I what? don't know if that's from my face, whatever. Did you get that CBD cream? Yeah. Did you put it on your shoulder? Sometimes. How about now when it hurts and you know about it and you have the cream? I could do that. Well, I'm just saying. I just had my first cup of coffee and a couple, well, no, I guess I tried to have it last weekend and it didn't do well by me. I remember you saying that. I felt I wanted a cup of coffee this morning, so I went and got one and uh, so far so good. Oh, good. What's dad doing? Well, he was helping me. He cut up the celery and the onion for the soup. Did he cry when he cut up the onions? I don't think he did. By the way, you're opening show number 44. Do you know who was the 44th president of the United States of America? Uh, it's not Kennedy. 44th president of the United States of America, mother. 44. Who do you think that is? The most significant shift in American politics in the history of American politics. Come on, who would have been the most significant... You're not talking about Lincoln. No. I mean, I'm not saying... I'm not taking anything away from old Abe. He totally threw down and did some things for the people. No, no, no. But that's interesting you say Lincoln because you're on the right track. 
If it wasn't for Abraham Lincoln, this person may never have become president of the United oh, States of America. Oh, you're talking about Obama. Yeah, he's number 44. Are you recording right now? Yes, I am. Oh, you're faking me out. I'm not faking you out. I told you you're opening show number 44, but you weren't really listening to what I was but saying. But I didn't think it was today. Yeah. Cool, cool. So does Dad want to say hi, or is he chopping broccoli? Mom, I forgot to tell you. What? Zoe got her driver's license. Oh, my Zoe How cool for her. Yeah, she went to go take the written test. She aced it. Wow, cool. My darling, my precious son. Yes, mother. I'm going to hang up because I have to get ready to go to my game. Okay, well, have a great game. Going to a Chinese Chinese restaurant. You're going to a Chinese Chinese restaurant? Is that a, a yeah, restaurant for we, stuttering Jews? I'm sorry? After you yeah, play cards? Going, no, that's where we play cards. You play cards in a Chinese restaurant? Yeah, not every time. Sometimes we play in a, a country club. And sometimes they play at an Italian restaurant. What's the name of the Chinese restaurant? It's called Hot Walk. Hot Walk? Hot Walk on Nordoff and Reseda. Okay, and they let you guys just sit in there and play and eat lunch? Uh-huh. That's pretty nice. How long have you been doing yeah. that? Long time. What's a long time? Long, long time. Ten years? Well, I don't know. Twenty years? Ten years? Five years? Maybe. Okay. How many ladies are playing cards? It's Pan, so it's eight players. Oh, Pan, that's right. Pan, it's not cards. It is cards. It's Pan. Yeah, it's cards. Yeah. It's eight decks of cards. And you're all about the same age? You're all close to 80 or above? To how old? 80 ish. I said 39, 40. The, the other ladies, not you. Four. Oh, 44. I can sing my little song. I can bang my little drum. Look around you, see where the real changes come from. If I can lift your heart, I feel so glad. But it takes more than lifted hearts to fix the things that make us mad. There's work to do. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. Additional music for today's show provided by Gene Burnett, geneburnett.com. I am Citizen 44.